We have to ask the question, what happens when people see Jesus, when they honestly see Jesus face to face? There's a new perspective, but what is that perspective? They should act different, but how should they act? And what are they to believe when they actually see Jesus? If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Romans chapter five. And this is um, written by a guy named Paul. We'll get into some of the details here in a minute. But this is probably the best example of what happens when people actually see Jesus, when they actually see his personhood. If you have your Bibles, we're gonna go through chapter five, verse one through five today. But before we do that, I'm gonna give a brief history on Romans. First is, who was Romans written to? Well, Romans was written to the church at Rome. That's why it's called Romans. The church at Rome was in the Mecca of the world at that time. That was the centerpiece of the world, was the city of Rome. And Rome was where all the major financial dealings happened. Rome was where all of the leadership was and all the government was. Rome was where, again, that, that, that big city, the centerpiece of the world, that's where everything came uh, kind of con conglomerated together. We had all the world's religions at the time even meeting together there in Rome and Christianity was one of those religions. The author of the book of Romans is this guy named Paul. Paul, who was uh, going against God's people, was going against God and going against everything uh, that was Christian. He was actually persecuting the Christians. He gets knocked off his horse. He goes blind. He hears the words from heaven, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Actually, his name was Saul at that time. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting my church? And in that moment, he has a revelation of who Jesus is. And from that point on, Paul spends his ministry trying to explain to people who Jesus really is. He's trying to get people to see Jesus face to face. So that's who wrote the book of Romans. The second is the scene in which we see Romans being written, or the third there. Uh, Romans is written during the reign of Nero. Nero was one of the worst rulers ever to rule over Rome. In fact, Nero was a really, really bad guy, hated Christians, hated the idea of Christianity. In fact, to such a point that he started persecuting Christians. When Paul wrote this book was in the third, uh, his third missionary journey. So Paul had three distinct missionary journeys as an evangelist. He went out and tried to win people, bring them into the, uh, to the church at that time. So this is written during his third missionary journey while Nero was sitting on the throne and while Nero was persecuting Christians. At the beginning of persecuting the Christians, they started out lightly persecuting Christians. They just started sending them to the Colosseum to fight the lions and basically feeding them to the lions as sport. Later on, they persecuted Christians a little, a little more vigorously. Nero would literally put Christians on stakes and cages, put them around his gardens, light them on fire as torches for his entertainment. This was a very bad guy. So during this context is where we see Paul starting to write this letter to Rome, to the church at Rome. Paul has an Old Testament, uh, he has an Old Testament cross-reference here, Habakkuk 2.4, which says the just shall live by faith. So all of Romans 5, Paul's trying to draw out this idea of the just living by faith. We'll get to that in a minute. And there's proof, there's actual historical proof that this book exists. As early as AD 250, we have parchments that are handwritten this book of the Bible. So there are pieces of this book of the Bible of Romans, literal pieces in museums that are dated as early as AD 250. So we know that at least 250 years post Jesus's death, this book was compiled and delivered to people, to churches like ours. 
So we know it's a very, very old book, and it actually gives us reason to believe that the words that are in Romans are actually the words that the early church would have read as well. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, and we'll start there. It says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have come, or I'm sorry, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into grace in which we stand. We exalt in hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we exalt in our tribulation, knowing that tribulation brings perseverance, and perseverance proves character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint. Because God love, because God, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now, this is Paul's first words to really describe what it means when we are to first meet Jesus, when we were to see Jesus face to face. He said a lot about Jesus, but this is where he gets really, really topical. He starts off this portion of scripture and he says, listen, we've been justified. Justified is a really fancy way to say to make something as it ought to already be. It's a way to say, we're gonna take things as that are messed up and revert them back to the way they were intended to be. It's a nice way of saying we're going to render the righteousness or what it should be right. It's a, right, it's a really good way to say that we are going to be made right, that God is going to set the world to right and he's gonna do that through us first, primarily. That's what it is to be justified. Then he goes on to say, by faith, and we'll get into that in just a moment. But there's a line here that he puts in the middle that is, it hinges, it really is the, the fulcrum for all we're going to talk about today. He's, he gives this line that we have peace with God. Now, depending on your translation, it might be broken up different ways. It might say that let us maintain peace or let us gain peace with God. And other translations would say we have peace or that we are at peace with God. There's a distinction there, right? One is saying, one set of theologians are saying that we should maintain a peace with God, that we should do what we can not to tick him off and maintain peace so that he's on our, we're on his good side. The other side is saying, no, no, you, you've got it wrong. We're already at peace with God because of what he did, because I've been justified, because things have been put back into proper order through faith. Now I know I have peace with God. Well, just to settle the argument for this church, we believe that this scripture is saying that we are at peace with God. There's nothing you have to do anymore to gain peace with God. See, there's, most of our lives are spent trying to figure out how to be at peace with God. When we're sick, we will pray, we will read scripture, we will give of our finances, of our time and our resources, and we will say, God, anything, anything just to take this sickness away from me. Last week, the beginning of last week, I was sick as a dog. I had a stomach virus. I do not get sick very often. And I couldn't remember thinking, rapture now, Lord. <laughs> like, good God, take me soon, Jesus. I'm done with a sickness. And, and you get into a mode where you're like, okay, God, how can we barter this out? How can I barter with you so you relieve the sickness and the tension? And if there's brokenness in our relationship, we'll do the same thing. If we're broken in our relationship with our spouse or loved ones, we'll do the same thing. We'll say, God, how can I barter with you to finally gain some peace in this area? And the reality is what scripture is saying is that you're already at peace with God. It says, therefore, having been justified in a past tense, that you've already been set to right. When you know Jesus, when you see Jesus, when you really get a good picture of him, you've accepted him into your life, you have been justified, you've been set to right by faith. And then you're set in this station of peace. Let me read it kind of the, the Nathan Hurst way, the 101 way that I would 
write this scripture out. It says, therefore, having been made as we ought to be by conviction of truth, respecting my relationship to God and divine things, we are at peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how I believe this, this verse should read for our common, maybe everyday language. A little less Christianese and a little less Bibleese with it. Therefore, we have been, we have been made as we ought to be because we have a we have a conviction of the truth respecting our relationship with God and divine things, that there's a relationship that comes when we are in Christ Jesus. There's a relationship that comes and there's a conviction of truth that there's a man with an experience that can't be argued with. Many of you have had an experience with God your experience that you've had with God is devoid of anyone arguing with you. You cannot argue with a man who has an honest experience with God. If you've been healed by him, you have an experience. If your relationship has been restored, you have an experience. If he's rescued you from de desperate situations, you have an experience. It's hard for someone to then argue with you that he is not real, that he is not sovereign, that he is not good, that he is not loving, that he is not whole. It's hard to argue with a man with an experience, therefore having been made as we ought to be by, by the conviction of truth, respecting my relationship with God and divine things. We are at peace now with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That through what Jesus has done on the cross, we are now at peace. We're not trying to earn something from God. When people see Jesus, point number one is they recognize they could be better. They recognize things could be better. When you first really and honestly see Jesus as he is, you recognize that you could be better. You recognize your life could be better. In your faults and your failures, in all of your successes and your triumphs, you realize that life, this life you're living, the life that you own, it could be better. In fact, it could be much better than what you're living because he grants you an effect that changes the totality of your life. But it only comes because he is making us as we truly ought to be. That there's an emptiness in life that's void of God. That there's an emptiness in life that's void of seeing Jesus as he is. And when we, when we run down life's path without knowing Jesus as he is, we will suffer shortcomings. We will suffer shortfalls. We will never truly be the human that we could be. We will never be the full-on person that we could be. The point number two is all of this is because we're convinced of the truth of the relationship that we have in God. We're convinced of our experience that we have with Jesus. We're, we're convinced because of the experience that we have in God. Because with man, a man with an experience is very hard to argue. Point number three, peace becomes our home in all things. There's no more worrying or trying to prove ourselves to God and to others that we are at peace now with God, that we settle into peace. No matter what is broken, no matter how hard it is, no matter how sick we get, we settle into peace. When our son had this bout with infection in his leg a few weeks ago, it was easy for our lives to get, to get a little bit of turmoil and to wonder and, and to maybe allow the mind to just go in all these rabbit trails of what could happen and what if all of the doctors 
What, what if all the doctors are correct and this becomes a lifelong issue rather than coming back to a sense of peace and saying, no, I am confident in the relationship I have between God and the divine. I am confident in my relationship with him. The world has been set to right through me first. The, the world is being set to right through my young son. I see Jesus as he is. And I, not that I deny what the doctors have said, not that I deny what science is saying, but I know there's a truth that's even greater. There's a truth and a trust that's higher. Our unending peace only comes when we see Jesus as he is. Our unending peace only comes when people see Jesus. There's a picture on the screen and there's a split image of a man's face. One is an older man, kind of grisly with a long beard and the other is the picture of Jesus. There are two ways in which most folks see Jesus. They see him first through our theology, through our, our, our idea of who God is. And the second is we experience Jesus through each other. We experience Jesus through the loving and careful hands of one another. We experience Jesus through the outworkings of interpersonal relationships. We experience Jesus as Christian says to Christian, I am your brother, let me shoulder your burden. We see Jesus in different facets. <clears throat> but we are always chasing that same face. When people see Jesus, we're introduced to a conviction of truth. Again, if you have your Bibles, uh, the chapter five and verse two there in Romans, it says, therefore, whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace. This grace would be the merciful kindness by which God is exercising or exerting his holy influence in which we stand and we boast in hope or a confident expectation of good of the glory of God or the glory or the good opinion concerning God. There's a pattern here that Paul is setting up. He's, <coughs> he's breaking down these verses, excuse me. The original here would have been able to suck all of the nuances out of the scripture. For us, we've been very far removed from the original Greek, so sometimes we have to pull it out and he says, therefore also whom we have obtained or we have gained an introduction that by Jesus Christ, we gain an introduction to faith. And this faith hinges on an idea called grace, this merciful kindness where God is exerting his will to us, where he's, he's showing off his good will, his good pleasure to us, where he is, his holy influence is invested in our life. And then we stand not only do we stand in God's grace, secure in what we have, but we also hope. We have a boastful confidence, a boastful expectation of good. There's two things there that are very, 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 very important. That we, as those who have seen Jesus, and the world around us when they, when they see Jesus as he is, they come to a place where they boast in a confident expectation of good. What does this look like in real life? How does this work out? Oh, this week, in fact, yesterday, my wife and I were sent a video uh, over Facebook from some good friends of ours. And as we were watching this video, I was, we were bawling. We were sitting at the kitchen just in tears, weeping. And this young couple who we started in ministry with, uh, I think 13 years ago, and they've been married for around 14, they've been trying to have a child for 14 years. 
They've went through the adoption cycle and, and they've been denied. Literally gotten to the point where they've paid for the mother's prenatal care. Uh, they've paid for the mother to be in, in the right hospitals and, and they paid for her to be in an apartment so she could checked out by the right doctor. And they've paid for so many things to help this baby come into the world healthy. And at the last minute, the mother decided, which is her right, uh, that she didn't want to give the child up. Unfortunately, she waited a month after the child was born to even tell them she wasn't going to give the baby up. Devastated their heart. And then later on that summer, they decided to do another round of in vitro fertilization treatments. They went to the Czech Republic to get it done. Took a whole summer, went to a specialist in the Czech Republic to hopefully get pregnant. And they came back and nothing worked. They had heard from God, you are going to have a baby in 2018. 2019 comes. January 1st, New Year's Day, no baby. They're devastated. They had a hope, a confident expectation that they were hoping and they were boasting about all year. We met them over our, um, our, our, our break, over our, uh, our vacation time last year. We sat with them in Florida and had dinner. <clears throat> and you can see in their eyes that this wrestling between the hope they had in God and wanting to be boastful of what God said, but then the practical outworking of reality that it, wasn't, it just wasn't happening. They weren't having a baby. Their bodies both said, you can't have a baby. The adoption process fell through. You can't have a baby. They're chasing the option of in vitro fertilization in a foreign country just so that this promise of God might come true. And they get the news in January, we've got a baby. We see this video of a proud mom and proud dad holding this child that they were believing for. And here's where the story just gets weirder and weirder and weirder. The last day of in vitro fertilization Mom's birthday is literally doing in vitro fertilization on her last day is when this boy was born in 2018. He carries her father's first and middle name and her brother's first and middle name. They didn't name him, the birth mother did. Now they have a baby because they were confident, confidently expecting, confidently expecting the good of God, the grace of God to be released in their life, and they were boastful of it to the point people thought they were nuts. In fact, their own family at times thought they're crazy. Their bodies have said, no, you can't have a baby. All of the avenues they pursued medically and through adoption said, no, you're not gonna have a baby. And for 14 years, they fought the cycle. God said, you're gonna have a baby in 2018. That promise wasn't realized until 2019, but the baby was born exactly 2018 on mom's birthday. Listen, that is what it is to understand and to see Jesus face to face. That is what it is to have a confident expectation, a hope that you can boast in, a hope that is secure in your heart that says, God, come hell or high water, I'm gonna get what you've called me to. I'm gonna get what you've promised into my life and I'm gonna boast about it even when it seems like it can't come true. God, I believe you and I take you at your word. When people see Jesus, we are introduced to a conviction of truth. A truth. Truth being the merciful kindness of God. His holy influence in our life we are secure and we can even boast in a newfound hope. We can even boast in the confident expectation of good. Listen, when you see Jesus, when you know him as he is, when you see him for who he truly is, you will get within your heart 
a reason to be hopeful. You will get within your soul a reason to boast. Where all is lost and all is diminishing and dying, you can speak life to those situations because you have a confident expectation of good that you are boasting in. By virtue of the glory of God is how all of this comes about. The glory of God simply is the good opinion of our relationship with the Father. That we can honestly say he's a good, good father. The word glory is just a really nice way to say, I have a good relationship with our God. That my opinion of him and the relationship that we have cultivated is a good one. That we don't say we have a good, good father just because it's written on a screen and it's a song that we sing. But we scream it from our heart because we are so in tandem with him. And by virtue of the glory of God comes this confident expectation of good. You have your Bibles again, verse three, and we're gonna read three through 5a. And not only this, but we also exalt in our pressing. I'm gonna to get to that in a moment. It's very important. Knowing that pressing brings about perseverance. Perseverance could be translated consistency and consistency to proven character and proven character to hope and hope does not disappoint. We're gonna line this out very succinctly, but before we do, you've got to understand, again, the language here that was written originally in the Greek, the original hearer would have gotten this right out the bat. They would have gotten exactly what the author was saying. But the pressing, we think, is, is simply bad things that happen in our life, yet it's talking more about a process. And if some of you that know metallurgy or you know how metal is manufactured, there's a process called extrusion molding. Think of your, your toothpaste, right? You have at the end, you have a round circle where the toothpaste cap goes and you squeeze the tube of toothpaste and a round ribbon comes out of that toothpaste. If your kids play with Play-Doh, you see this in their Play-Doh toys. If they have a little star shape and they push the, the, the Play-Doh through the star shape, what comes out? A ribbon of stars and they might even cut them up into little sections. Our sons have Play-Doh sets that they play with and I hate them because Play-Doh gets all over the carpet and gets all over the floor and I hate picking up after it but they love those Play-Doh play sets. And every time they're, they're messing with them, we're seeing an extrusion, extrusion molding process take place where whatever the, the cap is, whatever the shape is in the end that the substance or the Play-Doh is pushed through, that's the shape it takes. So what Paul is saying here is that the pressing in our life, the exterior pressures in our life force us to take shape. And what shape are we to be taking? The shape we're to be taking is the shape and nature of Jesus. See, Paul was saying that when you see Jesus for who he is, when pressure comes in life, you're gonna mimic him. You're gonna look like him. You're gonna show off and be more and more like him. So when hard things come, you say hallelujah and not holy, I won't finish it, but you know what I'm saying. That when hard issues of life come, that what comes out of you is the character, nature, and shape of God. I pray consistently in this church that you, would, that you would mimic the character and nature of God. What I'm actually praying is that when life comes, when pressure comes, maybe you want me to stop praying it after this, but when pressure comes, that you would start to look more and more like Jesus. What he's saying in verse three is very simple, that when pressure comes, the mold starts into action. We become more and more Christ-like and knowing that this pressure brings perseverance and the more we're pushed on, the more we look like Jesus. The more we're pushed on and squeezed on, the more Jesus comes out. 
And when more Jesus comes out and the more consistent we are with his character, it proves the inward character and nature that we have and that we hold. And his character brings hope that when we exemplify the character of God in tense and pressure-filled situations, that we start to have a newfound hope. And at the end or the middle of verse five, it says that hope does not disappoint. Bad King James translation. It should say that this hope that we have in Jesus, that this confident expectation cannot be put to shame. It's not that it just doesn't disappoint, it's that the confident expectation that we have, that we garner because pressure's been applied and we start to exemplify the character of God and pressure's been applied and we start to exemplify the character of God, that that consistent process It cannot be put to shame that there's a hope-filled nature there, that there's a hope of our heart that can never see shame. It can never be denied what it's chasing. We come to a place in our life, as verse three is exemplifying, where even the devil says, I can't put too much pressure on it, because dang it, every time I do, they, they, they express more of Jesus. Every time I put them in a hard situation, Jesus pops out. Every time I put them in a tense moment, more of Jesus pops out. Every time I think I've got a little pressure on them and can squeeze the life out of them, all I get is more Christ-likeness. Eventually, you become so immersed in the image and nature of God, he can't do anything to you anyway. See, we have a responsibility in life not to make it work, but to allow the Holy Spirit through the grace of God to to start to change what that mold looks like. Right now, that mold in your life might look like you. A little pressure is applied and the real you comes out. A little pressure is applied and whoa, the world sees some of the hidden things of our heart. That's okay for now. But once you submit to the will of God, once you see Jesus as he is, once you live in his grace, once you experience his hope, once you experience the confident expectation of good things, once you boast in the confident expectation of good that God will bring into your life, of the good that will happen even when there's pressure, you start to look and fashion and shape more and more like Christ. This extrusion molding forms our reality. This pressure starts to reveal the real me. This confident It's confident that any trial in life only exemplifies my consistent character, that all of life's pressures only show off more and more of who I'm gaining to be like, of my elder brother, that I'm becoming more and more like Christ. Consistency in character then, then shows and paves the way to confidence in character, confidence of the good that God will bring into our life, and this confident expectation cannot be put to shame. Man, when you see Jesus, there should be hope, there should be a realization that that is the answer to our problems. When you see Jesus as he is, there should be a burning desire to be like him because as your character is molded and shifted and changed into his image, the more confidence that you can have that the hope you have will never find shame, that the heart that you have that is so hope-filled will never be disappointed. Romans chapter five and verse five says, because the love of God or the affections and goodwill of God has been 
And here's a big statement. It says shed abroad. It's a super, super bad translation. That the love of God has been like a container that bursts and runs out within our heart through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Let me break this down a little more. That because of the love of God, his goodwill and affection. If you have a child, if you have a grandchild, if you have a loved one running around, you know what love and affection are, what goodwill and affection are. You see that child and you just, man, you just, you don't want to bite their little cheeks. You love them so much, right? I love them little babies with them fat cheeks. I just want to eat them. I mean, I don't want to eat a baby, but you know what I mean? That's weird. These little babies with these little fat cheeks and little rolly legs, you just want to squeeze on them, man. But you want so much good for that child. First time you see a child, and I'm assuming it's the same way for a grandchild, but the first time you see a child that's born, you're like, oh man, life's going to be so much better for you than it was for me, kid. I'm going to work my tail off to make sure that you have everything that, you could, that could be afforded to you. I'm gonna do everything I can to give you every opportunity. I'm gonna do so much good for you. That's the goodwill of our God. That's the good nature of our God. That's the love and affection that's spoken about in this verse. And the Bible says that his love is poured out in our heart. It's shed abroad in our heart. It's like a container, a housing container that blows up and it just starts to ooze out whatever was on the inside of it that his love is trapped and, and, and it's so palpable that, that it can't be contained and it starts to bleed out. And bleed out where? Within our heart. In the Old Testament, there was a prophet who asked God, what is it like to love your children? What is it like to love your people? And God questioned him and said, do you really wanna know? Because if you do, I'll let you know. I'll let you see what it's like to love my people. This prophet wanted to know, God, show me, show me what it's like to love. Show me what it's like to love the way you do. Show me what it's like to love your people. God says, fine, I've called you. I've called you out to marry that prostitute. At that time, prostitutes were literally put on blocks like slaves, and you could walk by and purchase one. He walked by the aisle, and he saw the prostitute that God had called him to, and he purchased her. He brought her into his home, and he loved her. He never mentioned her past. He never judged her for her past life. He brought her in and he loved her as a husband and as a good husband should. He gave himself selflessly to her. And in a short time, she found her way back to that old lifestyle. And again, she was on the block and he purchased her from the block and brought her back to his home. He loved her. No judgment, no condemnation. He loved her. This was God showing a prophet what it was like to love his people. This is what it is for us to understand that we can have a confident expectation of good things. We can be motivated by the mercy and grace of God that we can see Jesus just as he is because we understand his love. Just like this prophet, we, we sometimes experience a moment where we walk away from God and he goes and buys us back. We fail him. We fail to live up to the, to the mold that he set in front of us. We fail to live up to the example of Christ and he goes and rescues us back again. He was teaching this prophet, listen, you wanna know what real love is? You wanna know what love looks like? Every time she walks away from you and breaks your heart and goes back to a lifestyle that you know, you know is disgusting, a lifestyle that you know is broken, a lifestyle that only, that only ends in pain, all of the negativity that comes with that lifestyle and you know she's chasing it, you'll feel my unadulterated love. You'll feel what it is like 
to have affection and goodwill. In our lives, if we're to understand Romans chapter five in the end, that we have the love of God, it's been shed abroad in our heart, that that same affection and calling and drawing is what he bursts open in our heart. There are moments we feel far from God, it's because we're on the run. We're failing to look over our shoulder and see who's chasing us. That he is honestly the hound of heaven. That when we run from him, he chases us down. That when we run from his will, he moves closer to us. That when we try to escape his call, he pulls on our heartstrings to draw us back. This is what it is for us to understand the affection and goodwill of God that has been so shed abroad. It's been busting open in our heart that in our heart we're feeling the love, the unadulterated love of God spill over. I don't care where you're at in life. I don't care what mistakes you've made. I don't care what you keep going back to that you can't seem to get away from. He's never going to stop pursuing you. That's what love is. When people see Jesus, they set their eyes on his affection and his goodwill. They set their eyes on his love. Too much of religion tells you that Jesus is a good story. Too much of religion tells you that Jesus is a good guy. Too much of religion tells you that Jesus is about rules and regulations. Not enough religion tells you that he will chase you down in your worst moment. Not enough of religion tells you that he will find you in your most desperate situation. Not enough tells you that when you stick a needle in your arm and you think, God, it can't get any worse, that he's there in the middle saying, I wanna rescue from that pain. That when you walk away from a marriage because you just can't make it work anymore, that he wants to rescue you from that moment. That when you are sick in your body and you are depraved and you are hurting because of what life has thrown at you, that he wants to rescue you from those moments. Just like the prophet bought the woman off the block, he has bought, he has paid for, he has purchased you back. Over and over and over, his love rescues us. When people see Jesus, when they see him through us, through our actions of kindness, when they see him through our theology, when people see Jesus, they should see this type of dogged, tenacious love that will not give up. Listen, people give up on you. Institutions will give up on you. Society will give up on you. Jesus never will. There will be moments in time and in life where you will see his hand at work and you will recognize, my God, how did you make this happen? The love of God fills our heart when people see Jesus. It's like a damaged container that just oozes out uncontrollably the love of God. It can't help but just pour it out and it sheds into our heart. That our heart mops up the soppy mess that is the love of God. By virtue of the love of God, we live a new life in the Holy Spirit. That this, this all transpires because the Holy Spirit, the active participant of God here on planet Earth that, that is motivating us in our everyday life, pulls us and draws us into his presence. For people to see Jesus is to see his love. This morning, that's the question that I have to ask. If you're a person who claims to have seen Jesus, have you seen his love? Do you know his love this deeply, this intimately, this, uh, this impactfully? 
Do you know his love to such a degree that when you run from him, you know he's chasing you? Do you know his love to such a degree that when you fail him, that you know he's not condemning you, but he's coming for you? Do you know his love to such an extent that when you fail him, you don't worry of your failure? But like the Bible said, we boast in our pressure, knowing that when, we are, when pressure is applied, that we start to look more and more like Christ. That when pressure is applied to our life, if we'll allow him to rule and reign, he will start to fashion us into his image and likeness and we grow in our confident expectation, we grow in our hope and this hope can never be put to shame. It can never be disappointed, all because we focus first on his love. So this morning, do you know his love to that extent? If you can't answer yes, I'm gonna honestly question your salvation and what does that mean? I'm not questioning whether or not you're going to go to heaven. The Bible's honest and it says that when you accept Jesus, when you accept who he is, sacrifice, lordship, that he'll come into your life, he'll rescue you from heaven. But there's two sides to that. There's the rescuing from heaven and then there's the lordship side where he becomes lord of your life. Lord of your life means I don't have to do this on my own anymore. I don't have to be the captain of my ship anymore. I don't have to make all the rules anymore that I can allow him in his good nature, in his love-filled capacity to rule and to reign in my life. I question so many folks because I don't, I don't think they felt his love to that extent. I don't think they felt his love to the extent that they know that this God chases you down in your worst of scenarios only to pull you back into the Father's hands and to the Father's heart. This morning, that's the question we ask. We're about to pray, and as we pray and close the service, I want to encourage you, ask that question of yourself. Do I know his love to that extent? Do I know his love that deeply? Do I know his love so real that I know he would chase me down to pull me back into the family?